Ravi Kumar, you lead the global workforce for a major tech services firm, and your offerings serve over a thousand of the world's leading companies. Can you share an example of how talent is becoming the new arena for competition? Absolutely, Jeff. Thank you so much for that question. You know, the more I think about it, and it's counterintuitive that when there are so many losses of jobs all over the world, you think there is a lot of talent available. The reality is there was always a shortage of talent irrespective of the times we've lived in. And that is because we are looking for talent which is actually ready for the future. So I would still believe in the times we live in where there is a huge demand supply gap, you're still going to find gaps in talent pools. And that is because the talent for the future is never going to match to the talent we have today. So reskilling, repurposing talent, not just for Infosys, but also for our clients, uh, large enterprises is equally important. You know, we're just about to kick off this very interesting initiative to do matching of talent available in the market for companies which want to hire. You know, interestingly, in times of, the, times of this kind, industries actually let go of talent because structurally those industries are in trouble and industries hire talent. And a good example is the hospitality industry is losing talent. The telecom and utilities industry is hiring talent. How do you create the matching engine in between by reskilling, repurposing? So one of the things I personally am very excited about is to build a platform, a consortium of players who can reskill and do this pro bono in the times we live in where talent on one side is needed acutely shortage and talent on the other side is plentifully available. And talent leadership is what we're going to explore in today's conversation. Welcome to the Knowledge Institute podcast, where we talk with thought leaders on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. I'm Jeff Cavanaugh, head of the Infosys Knowledge Institute, and today we're here with Ravi Kumar. Ravi is the president of Infosys, where he leads the Infosys Global Delivery Organization across industry segments. He also leads client service offerings for Infosys, and he's the chairman of Infosys Foundation USA. Ravi serves in the boards of large transformational initiatives for the global clients. He actively writes and blogs on technology-led transformation, big data, next-generation supply chain, and disruptive business models. He also serves on several external boards. Ravi has a master's degree in business administration from the Xavier Institute of Management. Ravi, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jeff, for this opportunity. Look forward to talking to you. You talk a lot about talent, and of course, you, you write a lot, and then looking at that and having worked with you. How did you get started? And what's the role of talent and the people side of things uh, early in your career? As I speak to large enterprise CXOs, which are hungry for change, hungry for disruption, uh, I do realize the only constraint which stops them to scale that transformation is human capital. So human capital, in, in my view, is probably the single biggest reason why organizations transform well or not. Very early on in my professional career, I realized that grooming talent, building talent pools for the future, hiring people who are better than you, hiring people who actually can run faster than you, and therefore change the trajectory of every initiative you run, building leaders for the future has always been my own strength. And that's, that's the reason why uh, over a period of time, I have progressively taken large portfolios of work and have continued to remain stretched, but not stressed to drive change. One of the early learnings for me when I started my professional career is to drive comfort in uncomfortable zones. So if you look at my, if you look at my professional career, you would have noticed that 
I've done a variety of roles in a variety of organizations. And by design, I try to work in uncomfortable zones so that when you actually get there, you, uh, you find yourself in a comfort spot. That's been my strength. You know, I, you, you put me on an initiative. I will try to do it outside in. I'll bring in an outside in perspective. I will connect the dots. And because of the diversity of experience, I would try bringing in uh, a set of disruptive ideas, which can be game changing. So that's, that's basically been my strength because that's how I've been groomed for. What is it about talent itself and the future of work that excites you? We've been talking about future of work even before this shock or disruption which has happened to us. And I would, I would call this a known unknown which has happened to us. I think this shock is going to accelerate everything we spoke about. Uh, and let me highlight a few things. The first and foremost, work is going to move from people to people plus machines. Because of the flexibility of working on a virtual and a physical setup, and for the next one year or so, till the vaccine is out, we will swing from full virtualization to full physical to partial to, you know, we'll go back and forth. We have now got to a point where we are much more productive if we work in spurts of work over the week. So I would think humans plus machines plus gig will accelerate much faster to the workplace. Enterprises across the world do not use the gig economy for enterprise workforce. A majority of the gig economy today is used in the peripheral work, I would say. I call it the shared economy, but they're not used in the enterprise world. Enterprise workforce will actually have a predominant embrace of the gig economy. Today, around 10 to 12% of the total workforce in the United States is actually the gig economy. And my sense is in the next five years, that's going to be 25 to 30%. Machines will play a big role. You know, there is the saying, which I don't know whether you've heard about this, Work and jobs will get disconnected. What I mean by work and jobs is jobs actually form work. Before the Industrial Revolution, a job was equivalent to what you work. You know, if you go to a cobbler, the, the cobbler would make a shoe for you. Then came the specializations where parts of shoemaking, as an example, was split into different tasks. And each of these tasks were jobs. And that specialization led to an acceleration of productivity. Uh, subsequently, the Industrial Revolution displaced humans with machines, but machines got specialized in specific tasks. Now we are going to get to a world, a cognitive world, where machines and humans are going to work together instead of machines and, and humans getting displaced by each other. Machines and humans are going to work together, and the gig economy is going to be about it. So that's the big shift in work. Work is going to go from physical to virtual in a very seamless way. And productivity, I, I call it the productivity paradox. You know, for, for the last two decades, in spite of the embrace of technology in the workplace, productivity didn't go up. But productivity now will go through an exponential curve because of the hybrid model we will adapt to as we get past this crisis in the next 12 months or so and we get to a new equilibrium. And in that new equilibrium, we will get used to a new normal and that new normal will be a hybrid work model of virtual plus physical. So humans plus geeks, geek plus machines is real and it's gonna come faster than what we thought. Uh, machines will automate work to an extent that the dependency of human will go down and that is needed in the times we wanna live in. Enterprises will plan themselves for an unknown unknown because of the disruption they've gone through with a known unknown. You know, the virus was a known unknown. But as they get to the equilibrium, 
they would start preparing themselves for an unknown unknown. So work will then be physical plus virtual and work would move to a machines plus geek paradigm. You sound optimistic. It reminds me of something you wrote recently on productivity optimism. So you want to go into that in a little bit of detail? Sure. You know, if you've heard about the productivity paradox, you would have noticed that in spite of the embrace of technology, productivity has really not gone up for the last few decades. Human productivity has been very constant. And the reason is the embrace of automation onto the workplace was very low. So there are a confluence of forces which are going to drive a productivity increase or a productivity exponential curve. And that's why I call it the productivity optimism. And there are a bunch of forces which are going to come together. First and foremost, we spoke about the embrace of machines. That's going to increase productivity. And machines are going to amplify human potential. That's the first force. The second force, most enterprise workplaces have been in urban settings where you work for hours together, but you get to the workplace, it takes you time. And you get back home, it takes you time. So you shrink those connectors because you're working in a virtual way that gives you more time. Third, because you're gonna work in spurts, most people I've met now in our teams today tell me that they work longer, but they work in shorter spurts. You know, there is scientific study which actually says that humans are not productive for more than four or five hours in a workplace. So if you break your work into a longer span in the, in the day and a longer span during the week, and you mix it up with your personal life, productivity actually shoots up because you just work in, in spurts of energy. Uh, so that's, that's another force. The fourth force, you know, and this is a fascinating one I heard from many, they, they have much more gratitude and much more empathy in the workplace. And the heart is in the right place when they're actually delivering work in the times we live in. Gratitude has never been more important than today for what we have. So humans are actually giving more to their work because they feel much more empathetic to the teams and the work they do because they have, you know, they have something which, uh, which they feel proud about. So the gratitude and empathy to work has changed significantly in the last few weeks. And that's going to be a permanent shift. When you actually go to the other side of uh, the crisis, I think purposeful employers Conscious capitalism will play a much bigger role for enterprises and people. Now, what should we be careful about? We should be careful about the fact that when you go to a physical plus virtual world, do you have the mechanism to measure productivity? Do you have the workflows of an office? Do you have the rhythms of an office? Can you learn just in time on the fly to change to the rapid dynamic needs of the order of organizations and the order of the society. You know, organizations are now moving at clock speed of hours versus organizations which were moving at a clock speed of days and, you know, months and years. Uh, you need to dynamically change. So can you change your skills? Can you change your capabilities to scope up with the clock speed which organizations have, which is today in hours, literally, because the world around you is going to change. So that's the reason why I actually felt this word productivity optimism is apt and it's an inflection point. Uh, if done well, you could boost productivity. If done badly, you could breed inefficiency in the system. Yeah, it's interesting. I think being in a services firm, it also lends itself to the possibility of empathy and gratitude because you are serving. It's literally built with the name and hopefully industries that may not have been quite as connected to clients and customers can see that now in that purposeful aspect. 
Also, could you maybe and in fact, this? yes, you know, if I may, if I may, it's also one other switch, you know, amongst these forces. One other switch, which I'm sure you've heard of, digital technology dollars, which were spent on consumer value chains and supplier value chains in the past, have actually been shifted to workplaces and human value chains. And to harness the power of technology in the workplace, that is going to boost productivity as well. Never before employee and workplace were right up the order. They were at the bottom of the stack in terms of priority for digitization and adoption of technology. And that has changed significantly. And now I would think that's a permanent shift as well. So that's going to boost productivity as well. And a reminder, everyone, that you're listening to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. We're here with Ravi Kumar, Infosys president and expert in digital talent leadership. Ravi, it's interesting you mentioned stakeholder and conscious capitalism. Can you talk about what Infosys is doing, especially in light of the response to the pandemic, as well as the approach, this broader ESG approach that's embedded in the business? If somebody asked me, what are your top 10 priorities these days? I would say all 10 of them are about safety and health of our employees. And then comes mission critical work for our clients. And then being purposeful to the societies we serve in. We've done a bunch of things. Back in India, the foundation works for a variety of things related to healthcare and uh, supporting the COVID response in many states where we represent. In the United States, we're doing a bunch of things. And I'm actually the chair of the foundation, Infosys Foundation. This is also one of those times when parents find their gratitude to teachers much more than ever before because children are at home and they realize how valuable jobs teachers are doing. I've actually had many parents come and tell me, why are teachers getting paid so less? They've realized suddenly how important these jobs are, how difficult these jobs are. So one of the things the Infosys Foundation in the U.S. is doing, which is actually focused on K-12 schools, K-12 school children and K-12 school teachers, we felt it's a great time to repurpose our platform. We have a digital platform to teach teachers. We think that's the shortest way to get to students. We thought it's a great way to extend this platform to teaching students as they are at home and doing this in a very experiential, immersive way. So we call this the home edition where parents, teachers and students or children of children can come together and participate in computer science education uh, virtually. Just to give you an example, last week uh, we ran a family code night where teachers and parents can work along with their children to have a fun code night. And there are a whole bunch of immersive sessions which we have actually created. For two specific states, the state of Connecticut and the state of Rhode Island, we're playing a very active role. In the state of Connecticut, we're working on the workforce committee of the governor, and we're trying to build reskilling capabilities so that we could do matching of jobs which, which are available to people who have lost jobs. In the state of Rhode Island, which is a small state, so we thought it would be very impactful if we can help the governor there. I'm a part of the business advisory there. There are three things we're doing. One, we're helping small businesses in that state to build digital platforms. Remember, we have a design hub there. So we have a lot of design talent. So these young designers from Infosys are building digital platforms so that small businesses can access their consumers on a digital platform because they can't physically be there. Last week, we launched a arts platform. Rhode Island is very popular for 
innovative art. So we launched a virtual arts platform, which helps artists, you know, musicians, singers, poets to come, come onto a virtual platform and create an immersive experience with a virtual audience. So we created that platform. And finally, we are building a contact tracing application for the citizens of the state of Rhode Island. As they go back to business on the 8th of May, we are hopeful that the contact tracing application can help them reduce the infection rate in the state. So we're using a geofencing location-based system, which can trace your contacts uh, if any one of them has been in six feet distance for you, provided you opt in for that feature as a responsible citizen. So that is an app we are very excited about in case it is successful in the state of Rhode Island. We would like to take it to other states in the U.S. as well. Yeah, it's fantastic. Obviously, I've been following these closely. And I think the speed at which some of these things has happened also indicates what you have to have in place to make it happen. One thing I want to talk about is culture and understanding the emphasis culture when you comment on something. There's a lot of uh, formal organizational structure, but oftentimes decisions are made. In fact, I remember, I think it's called the Bodhi Tree. Uh, I'm Hyderabad, near your office there, used to go. And I think some of the most important decisions were made there and people came together. And if you could comment on maybe how some of these informal networks actually help decisions and culture and people to, to connect and be effective. Thank you so much. You know, uh, thanks for that question. I think, you know, you made me nostalgic about uh, my days in India as I recollect the, the close-knitted communities we all operate in our development centers in India. So this shock, uh, you know, the crisis which we are all in will certainly, the worst of the times are also the best of the times and humans have the ability to convert the worst times to the best times. Uh, I hope this shock can reinforce some of the things which Infosys is good at and some of the aspects in our, in our jobs which positively change. First and foremost, I think because we, we are moving to a virtual plus physical world, I think we are going to become very outcome centric in our approach to measure performance. I think it's, it's super critical. Second, we have started to over-communicate to our employees and our stakeholders, over-communicate to a point where we feel like we're giving away too much. But the fact that we want to communicate more, I think is very important. Third, we are much more empathetic to our teams than ever before. In the last few months, or maybe in the last few weeks, Every time we start a conversation with our teams, we start with whether they're, they're safe and healthy, how is their family doing? All of that is actually becoming an integral part of who we are. The sense of gratitude we spoke about, the sense of gratitude and empathy in the workplace. Never before have we felt so much of gratitude for what we have. You spoke about organized structures. Most traditional organizations are hierarchical. I think this shock would shift them to be very networked. You know, organizations are going to shift from hierarchical to networked organizations because decision-making was very networked. Decision-making was very empowered. Remember, we have moved 95% of our productive work into homes of people today. 95% of our workforce in, the, in India is enabled from homes to work for our clients. So we have entrusted on them responsibilities like never before. So that empowerment is going to make them much more responsible in their jobs. I would say the future of our workplace is going to be tested on resilience, adaptability, virtualization, and productivity. These are the four attributes on which we would test ourselves. 
and our uh, engagement with employees has become much more intimate and expansive, as I call it, much more intimate and expansive than ever before. Our clients and Infosys are all getting tested on agility and resilience. We were always tested on agility before. Now we're going to be tested on agility and resilience. Agility and resilience are two opposites of the same thing, but uh, how do you test on two opposites, which, which, are, which kind of have counter forces? Agility and resilience will be the future for enterprises as well. I'd like to switch gears a little bit. You made comments before about Adams going local and Bits going global. And it's curious, did your start as a nuclear scientist at the Atomic Research Center have anything to do with your thoughts on Bits and Adams? Yeah, so, you know, Jeff, I actually wrote a post uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I'm actually preparing for one this weekend, and I'm going to speak about the changing role of the CIO. Adams and Bits is a, is a fascinating concept from Nicholas Negroponte, who wrote about how atoms and bits, atoms are going to be consumed by bits in a way, and bits are going to, you know, accelerate in adoption. This shock, this crisis will localize atoms and globalize bits much more than before. What I mean by that is manufacturing will become much more reasonable. Atoms, I, I kind of relate to manufacturing, the physical objects around us. Manufacturing will become much more reasonable than ever before. But how do you make manufacturing reasonable? The very reason why manufacturing went global is because manufacturing was not competitive to being reasonable. So you will apply more technology, you will forcefully apply more autonomous technologies on manufacturing, because as they become reasonable to stay competitive, to stay economically viable, you have to apply more technology. So technology will catapult, leapfrog manufacturing to a highly automated, lower labor intensity kind of an industry and it will come very reasonable because your supply chains have got so disrupted in the times we lived in that resilience will play a much bigger role and hence manufacturing will become more local. The reason why I call bits will become more global is because customers have suddenly got used to the virtual world. And if customers have got used to the virtual world, they will potentially offshore more. They would say, well, I, I got this done virtually, so how does it matter if it's done here or it's done in other parts of the world? and they would make it more virtual. And why would they make it more virtual? They would make it more virtual because they would apply to atoms because atoms have to be economically viable. So it's a vicious positive cycle. So I would therefore say atoms will be more local and uh, bits will be more global. And this crisis will accelerate that process. Well, since you mentioned global and you mentioned this word networked a lot, can you share your thoughts on the role of public entities and, and academia, as well as private partnerships? Absolutely, Jeff. I have this fascinating concept about governments. And I always, when I speak to a public policy maker, I always ask this question. Governments across the world are wired for the first 20 years of citizens' lives and the last 20 years of citizens' lives. All across the world, governments are built for that purpose. First 20 years of citizens' life for primary health care, primary education, till, till all of us become adults. And then they again come back for the last 20 years of human lives for old care, medical support, pension funds, and everything else at the end, at, you know, your old age benefits. But change is happening in the middle. And governments are now being tested on how well they do in the middle. 
And this crisis will accentuate that process of governments to be much more enabled in the middle rather than on the, uh, on the ends of the cycle. Public-private partnership it will be super critical for governments to be efficient in the future. Most governments today which are efficient in handling the crisis are the ones who are having a private-public partnership. And the academia will play a very important role in that consortium, in that ecosystem, because countries like the United States did scientific research out of the academic ecosystems. And the ability to bring private public and the academia together will determine how well we deal with known unknowns in the future and be resilient for the future. So these partnerships, these ecosystems will drive how well governments and societies function. Expecting your time, Ravi, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add before we bring this to a close? So I would say, you know, uh, these are unprecedented times. There's always a silver lining in these times. Uh, I would say what we learn out of this will get us to be much better as we get past this crisis. And hopefully we learn about dealing with future crisis in a much superior way. Who or what has been a major influence on you, like a person, a book, and why? You know, in recent times, I would say I like the writings of Yuval Harari. You know, Yuval is a fascinating writer. He's a historian, but he uses history to predict the future. And his ability to connect the dots across various facets of the world to make a point I think it's very fascinating. He's one writer I, I'm always excited about. I like Simon Sinek, who wrote about the infinite mindset. Actually, he's talking alongside me on a webcast we are doing on the 8th of May. It's no better time than now to talk about the infinite mindset. You know, he spoke about this very interesting thing and that fascinates me. Enterprises across the world today are possibly the best platforms for change, possibly the best platforms for societal change. A couple of decades ago, economists kind of defined the existence of enterprises for maximizing shareholder value. I think that was a very myopic view of enterprises. Enterprises have to exist for a much purposeful journey, for societal impact. The platform of business is probably the best platform for societal change. And that I would believe, you know, it's, it, it will get reinforced as we get past this crisis to the other side that purposeful enterprises will be the ones which will differentiate and stay ahead of the others. There will be distinctively two sets, one which are purposeful, one which have been built for societal change, societal impact, and those are the ones which will be valued the most. What's the best way for people to, to find you online? I'm very active on the social media, but I mix it up with fun. I mix it up with things I normally like. I live through the week spending time on Twitter and LinkedIn and everything else. And in a world we are living in, which kind of is isolated, that seems to be the only, only way you can get connected to the world. God, I think LinkedIn and then Twitter are certainly handles that uh, we'll make sure that we put them in the show notes and the transcripts. Uh, and people can find them there at emphasis.com forward slash IKI in our podcast section. Robbie, thank you for your time and a very interesting discussion. Everyone, you've been listening to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. Thanks to our producer, Catherine Burdett, Dode Bigley, and the entire Knowledge Institute team. And until next time, keep learning and keep sharing. And stay safe.